0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back. You're listening to the Desi VC Podcast, and I'm your host, Akash Path. This is a show where I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. Today is a very special episode for a number of reasons. You've tuned in to the 25th episode of the Desi VC Podcast, and I'm extremely delighted to have crossed this number. When I first began this podcast, my goal was to hit 10 episodes, and that would have been a huge success for me personally. But I must thank each and every one of you for your love, affection and support for helping the podcast get this far. I couldn't have done it without you all. And as they say, the journey is long and we've just begun. So brace yourselves, everyone. We're in it for the long haul. To celebrate this mini landmark, I have a special guest on the podcast here today. I have been waiting for a long, long time to have him on the show and the stars have aligned, everybody. He's here on the 25th episode. The timing couldn't have been better. Across the table from me, virtually speaking, is Ankur Variko. He's an angel investor and ex-CEO of Nearby, formerly known as Groupon India, a hyperlocal e-commerce company based out of New Delhi. Prior to Nearby, he was the managing director at Rocket Internet and before that, he co-founded Ascentium Web. He has also had a short stint as a management consultant at AT Kearney. Now, Ankur holds an MBA from the Indian School of Business, a master's degree in physics from Michigan State University, and a bachelor's from Hindu College, Delhi University. However, many of you may also know him through his social media, where he's constantly sharing videos on entrepreneurship and life as such. I can't wait to share this episode with you all. So let's jump straight in and listen to our conversation with Ankur. Ankur, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show here today. I've been looking forward to this episode for a while now. And as it turns out, it's also our 25th episode. A small landmark for us here in the podcast and having you here is the icing on the cake. So thank you very much and welcome to the DCVC podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Akash. Thank you so much. That's really generous of you. I'm glad to be the 25th guest on the podcast and I'm super happy to be speaking to you.
0: So here's a little known fun fact. When I first started the DCVC, I had a list of 10 people I wanted to interview over the course of the podcast and yours was one of them. So today being the 25th episode and you being the first person that I'm able to interview from that list means a lot. So on that note, let's get started. I've sat and watched many of your videos and interviews in the past in the lead up to our chat today, but could hardly find content where you've spoken about investing as such and more so from a personal lens. So in a way I'm hoping this turns out to be one of those very few pieces of content that sheds light on the investor persona of Ankur Varico but before we get into that meaty stuff how have you been and how have the last 4 or 5 months been for you personally and professionally
1: it's been uh, to be frank akash it's been really really good I, uh, I i say this with a with a fair bit of caution and and with a fair bit of recognition of the privilege that we sit on because we really didn't have to worry about so many things that most people had to. And this was a great time for me to unwind. It was a great time for me to understand different things that I hadn't done before. And and I think three things have largely emerged. One is how little we need to be happy, which the lockdown very beautifully imposed upon us as a realization. Two, how much eating healthy and having a schedule matters. And and number three is how many people work towards making your life so much easier on a daily basis, which when you have to pick up all those jobs for yourself. And this is, of course, coming from someone who stays in India where we get a lot of help as against the U.S. where most of the things are done on your own. Um, you just realize that there, there's so many people who do little, little things for you so that you can go on to do bigger things for yourself. Um, but the lockdown has been really good.
0: Absolutely. We are in a privileged sort of setting right now. And I was having a chat the other day with one of my friends and she was saying, you know, let's talk over the weekend. And I told her, I mean, the weekend, weekday, everything's kind of the same as we speak. You know, I personally have enjoyed the transition from an overly formal world that we're used to working into a much more relaxed and flexible environment that we've been forced to make peace with, you know, and yeah. I could get philosophical and poetic all day about it, but I'll say that for another episode. So I guess you could also give us some ground reality and share with us what you've been hearing from people around you. And in the long run, do you see this period as a much needed inflection point? or a more prolonged economic downturn that we all have to work our way out of given how quote unquote poor economies have been over the last
1: couple of years. I, I feel it's 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 going to be quite the latter, Akash. Um, I, I generally think that the country and the world in general will go through a fair bit of struggle. And and largely because the the entire flywheel that was working In the last four or five years, post demonetization in India, and the machinery that was working to to get us back on track after after that economic setback um, has has unfortunately been somewhat reversed. And that will take time because this has directly hit labor. This has directly hit a lot of large industries, whether it's auto, whether it's travel, uh, whether it's transportation. And, and the ripple effects of those are, are yet to be seen. So I think it's still early days. And what we're witnessing is just the first-order con- consequence of, of the pandemic. But the, the next few quarters will, will unfold the, the second, third, fourth order. And at least I personally worry, not that I'm an economist or I have any sound academic judgment around this, but just my intuition of, of what I've seen around and heard. A small business has been deeply impacted. That forms the cornerstone of the Indian economy. Um, consumption has been deeply hit, which has been the, the biggest reason why the economy has been growing. And, uh, and people are just very cautious and not taking as many risks as they used to.
0: Absolutely. And I guess one could also say that the public's appetite for visions of the future have also changed.
1: Yeah. True. Very true. I. I 100% concur with that.
0: I mean, I personally look at this period and I want to see the positives as much as possible because we've seen consumer patterns change. We've looked at traditional models and businesses that were heading towards a virtual sort of a change being, you know, those processes being fastened at this point. Do you personally see this as an opportunity for, you know, say the retail industry for that matter? which was kind of like heavy hit even before COVID and has now almost completely shifted online. We can argue that India has kind of like opened up or is opening up in multiple places. And that gives gives an opportunity to build offline and online business models and kind of like supplement both businesses side by side. On the other hand, do you see this as not much of an opportunity? These are businesses that perhaps could not be saved at all.
1: No, I, I wouldn't say that. I'm not being pessimistic uh, and I definitely don't, don't see that happening. I feel any, any industry that's going through a hard time right now, uh, as long as it's a fundamental industry, which most industries are, is just going to see a different way of delivering the same service or product that they used to in the past. So retail is going to remain there. But yes, as you mentioned, it, it maybe will manifest itself into a different way from offline to online. Hospitality will remain a big industry, but maybe the the way that hospitality is is delivered is going to change. Airlines are going to remain big, but the way that they are looked at is going to be different. So I feel this this is definitely a point which a lot of industries have been forced to consider what they've been thinking about for the longest while. Where my worry comes from is this shouldn't be one of those events in history where the largest firms because they had the wherewithal to bear the hit also end up being the ones who make this change and thus become more and more aggregated in their power because that is not necessarily a good thing for the long-term economy and the consumer power itself so i would have loved a democratic way of, of survival, if you will. Um, but what tends to happen in these moments of crisis is the, the bigger fish eats the smaller fish or the smaller fish just die. Uh, and then all that you're left with is, is the smaller fish becoming more and more and more and more powerful. Um, and that's the bad side of capitalism. That's That's the side which when we see it, we don't like it. And that's why the overly archaic rules that are put in to prevent that. But the more rules you put in to prevent something that's naturally happening, uh, the lesser effective those rules will be in the long run. Right. Um, and, and that's just something that we've seen time and again historically.
0: That's a great point that you made there. And I think this is not the first time in history that we're seeing this play out. We saw this happen in the 2000 internet crash. We saw that happen during the financial crisis. And it's playing out all over again. So it's fundamentally how economies, at the macro level at least, the economies have functioned. And it's unfortunately the way that it's going to function in the coming years as well. I don't see this changing for a long term.
1: Yeah, yeah. see that as well.
0: Now, a lot of listeners might already know you because you're one of the most active people on social media and have built an enviable following over the past decade or so through your blogs, posts, videos, tech Talks. And on a professional front, you've been the face of one of India's most successful internet companies. But I'm curious to hear your story from your perspective. How did things really play out for Ankur and what are some of the key events that led you to where you are today? And perhaps as part of that, you could also touch upon the period when you started investing as an angel.
1: Sure. Sure um it's been a wonderful life akash i'm just so blessed to have lived my life and i almost treat my life as a third party and i i'm, I'm jealous of it i'm envious of it because it's just such a fascinating ride the um, there are essentially three events that i feel played a very important part in, in me being where i am the first is when i i went to the us for a phd degree my aim in life was to become an academic to to become a space scientist, to join NASA, and, and to just live my life in research. And, um, and I joined a PhD program in the US. I was doing well with it, but I wasn't happy. And when I realized that I wasn't happy, but this was something that I was good at, it was the first time it, it struck me that, that what you're good at and what you could be happy doing could be two different things. And when that realization struck me, I, I came back to India. But those two years that I spent in the U.S. fundamentally changed me. They changed me in meaningful ways because I, I, I saw the the U.S. as this market where true meritocracy existed um, in a form that was unlike what I'd seen before. It was a market that gave you literally everything that it could to distract you. There were... There was entertainment, there was retail, there was porn, there was gaming, uh, there was just literally every luxury available at your disposal. And then I felt that the market used to shout out and say, of all the distractions that we've laid out, we want to see who all overcome them and become meaningfully successful. Because those are the ones that genuinely have gotten past all of these. And that was a fascinating way for, for me to see it because it, it wasn't so much about intelligence anymore. It was equal opportunity for everyone and my time in the u.s fundamentally changed me a lot the second one was when i went to business school Um, when i went to business school i was a nerd i all i knew was was science Uh, my my only individuals that i had learned anything from were were einstein newton archimedes and the likes i had no idea about marketing about finance about operations about supply chain about anything that happens in the real world so going to business school, hanging out with very smart people, hanging out with people who had work experience, who had actually worked in organizations was, was just mind-blowing. It, it taught me so much about myself. Um, and that was the, the second piece that really shaped me out. And the third one was when I got my first big break uh, as, as Groupon, when Groupon started in, in India in 2011, and um, they saw in me Someone who could start the group on India business. And and that's what I did. And it just gave me a really wide campus to to just show what is it that I could do, learn a lot about myself as a leader, as a manager, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as an executive. And and that set up, I think, uh, a large part of uh, what my journey has been so far. An angel investing, Akash happened out of just this belief that the follow-on generations of entrepreneurs will always need the support of the first-generation entrepreneurs to succeed. It wasn't so much to make money. In fact, I still don't know how angel investing makes money. But it was definitely with the intent to give back with the intent to say, I have had such a joyous period building businesses, and I know so much more that the first time entrepreneur wouldn't because I made the same mistakes that I see them making. So can I in some way through my capital and through my time, help them circumvent those mistakes and, and hopefully have a better shot at succeeding than, than otherwise? And that was a start, which is why most of my early investing just happened in people that I knew. Um, and I guess most of the investing starts that way. Um, and it's continued since then.
0: Now, there's a lot to unpack here. And when you <laughs> do, there are a couple of things that really interesting things that pop out. Now, let me start with this, because I do have a follow up. And in about five minutes time, you will see where I'm trying to get at you mentioned groupon business and then which you then rebranded to kickstart nearby's journey what convinced you at this point that this was the right move for you personally the reason i asked this is because many entrepreneurs put a lot at stake and yours in comparison was more public and in some ways career defining if that went wrong for you at that point you would perhaps maybe for a short period of time, being ridiculed and being the public face of failure. What made you put, quote unquote, everything on the line at that point in your
1: life? Um, I really don't know what it was, Akash, to be very frank and honest with myself. But I do know and I distinctly remember this absolutely clear conviction that being with... Groupon, for no fault of theirs, would not have made India succeed. And that was largely because Groupon had uh, an IPO which didn't go down so well. It had its own problems and focus areas to focus on in US and Europe, which were the two big markets for it. So the attention that they could give Asia-Pacific and within that India was limited financially, technologically, any which way. And I understood that, I respected that, but I was sitting in the middle of the opportunity and I could see what all was possible. So for me, it wasn't so much about what could happen because of it, it was largely about what couldn't happen if I stayed in it. And and that's a recurring thing in my life where I'm somehow very comfortable with the uncertainty of what lies ahead because, if I'm just certain of where I am, and if that would not work out for me, I'm just very, very convinced to cut out instantly. And it's a, it's a belief that I live by that do not waste your time living a mistake just because you've been living it all this while. And And that was just the case with with Groupon, clearly. It wasn't a mistake, I would say, but it was definitely very visible that nothing would happen of Groupon India if it were to continue in that fashion. And uh, I just needed to to get out of it to give myself that breathing space and that ammunition to execute upon the Groupon India business in the way that I thought it should have been, uh, which is what Nearby did, finally. Um, I stand here as a survivor, right? So uh, the, the reason why you're, you're speaking to me or the reason why I, I even come up in a conversation is just simply survivor bias. It's, no, I, I survived by several hundreds and thousands of people who would have taken the same decision that I took uh, didn't, unfortunately. Um, so I, I just stand here as as a, as a lucky gene that got through. Oh, would you say
0: it was more difficult to convince yourself or those around you when you were making this decision?
1: Oh, it was hands down, hands down, more difficult to convince others. I was just totally convinced. I was just absolutely convinced. It took almost nine months of convincing groupon. and And then clearly so, right? Because they're, like their first reaction was, "This doesn't happen. Like what are you talking about?'re we're a, we're a publicly listed company, you're a hundred percent subsidiary. And you're now saying, we want to buy you out and, and, and carve out an entire independent entity outside of our portfolio. like That, that doesn't happen. And, and they were right. It's never happened. We were the first 100% owned subsidiary of a US publicly listed company that was spun off in India. So it was crazy when I think about it. But back then I was like, of course this makes sense. like Why wouldn't you even think about this? Uh, but I can see where they were coming from. It took a lot of convincing.
0: And needless to say, I mean, they were worried about the media backlash. How would this come off? What is the narrative here? Like, as you mentioned, a subsidiary trying to buy over the parent company or at least the parent company's business in one part of the world would not really play well given that it was already a public company at that point. Right. So I'm guessing existing round of investors as well would have, it might have been really difficult for you to convince some of them to come on board.
1: And, and you're, so you're right. Here here here's something that I haven't actively spoken about in public. Um, every investor that we went to for the management buyout said no, except Sequoia. And the biggest reason was we don't see how this will work. This this doesn't work. Like it it wasn't so much about the conviction in the team, it wasn't so much in the business. It was just like this this doesn't work. And and to the credit of Sequoia and, and in particular Mohit. Um, who who sits on the board and has been a fantastic supporter all these years. Um, he saw he saw in us precisely what we saw in us as well, and he just he just stuck around. And I don't know of too many investors who would stuck around stick around for for so long and be so patient. But to his credit, he did. Um, but everyone else, to to the point that you were making, they were like, no, this this is just too complex. It's just too complex a deal. Why would we even put up for internet? It's a strategic who would own minority, but still is a strategic. So who else would want to come? We would suddenly say no to all other strategics and so on. So it was complicated, no doubt. So was there
0: pressure to deliver results immediately? Or were people bought in for the long-term vision here?
1: I think there were. Like We we were very clear that that's how we wanted it to be. Um, Sequoia still... Invested. It's been it's been five years, and they still are. Right? So so that should give you a sense of uh, how they have been. Um, Groupon was very clear that we're happy to play a minority role, and and we've done whatever we could to to get the company to this point. Uh, and now you're on your own, and we wish you the best. Which was very honest and transparent. And I, I don't think there was anything that they have done materially to to, to change that stand um and uh, and then it was just making it work which 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 wasn't as easy as we thought it would be but it was just about making it work
0: now today having been through that journey as an entrepreneur and ceo what is your relationship with risk and how does that translate to say your investments we can now get into that part of the podcast okay. but if one were to break down your portfolio and analyze it, will they find Ankur Variku, the businessman, entrepreneur, and CEO? Or is there a different personality that's a result of experience, realism, and industry knowledge?
1: That's a very interesting question. And I don't think I've been asked this question ever before. So let me take a shot at this. I, hand on heart, would call myself a terrible investor. And, and here's why, because I pay virtually zero respect to money, and I over-index myself on the founder, over-index myself on their drive, their ambition, and don't do as much of a thesis-based approach for my investments. That I think I should be, if I were to be serious about this. So, so if you were to look at my, my portfolio, what you'll realize is possibly a really ill-managed portfolio which comprises almost all of illiquid assets. I have not invested significantly in public markets. Almost all of my investments have been in private companies. My biggest investment was in Nearby itself. When Nearby happened, I cut a check for Nearby and put in a skin in the game for myself. And over the years, I've I've cut checks for, for very early stage companies. And when I reflect upon them, Akash, I see that while I'm sitting on a positive IRR today, and a fair bit of it realized it could have gone in any direction, and I still wouldn't have a clue. Um, and and that's just the the reality of it. So it's like I find myself the worst person to be speaking to anyone on on personal investments <laughs> because I think that I've just I've done such a shoddy job myself. Uh, I've just been very lucky, but. There, there was I don't think that there was any any logic or any research or any science behind most of my moves, um, and I'm happy to walk you through a few of them to to convince and impress upon you that fact, but yeah, that's where.
0: That's what it is. I'll take you up on that offer if you could give me <laughs> one example of it. Because very few times that people will come onto a podcast or let alone public go out and say they're bad at something. But to go on and say that you're a bad investor and you haven't really had a playbook as such is one, it takes a lot of courage to say that. But you perhaps can say that because you're sitting on a positive IRR and you can, you can say that it's kind of worked out for you. And eventually you hope to have something in place that kind of gives you an opportunity to kind of build on that. Now, if you could take an example and give how one of those things played out for you and today you can perhaps sit at a point of privilege and say that, hey, this kind of worked out for me, but there were elements of risk that I took and yeah. it might not really come out as blatantly as possible to to the to the listener, but I'd love for sure. you to touch upon some, some of those so that there are nuances that will stand out. And I'm pretty sure yeah. there'll be the takeaways for people who are getting into angel investing as such. So
1: what I've seen uh, first is that the the power law is just so goddamn true, man. It is just so goddamn true. Um, One investment of mine has till date given me a realized 23x. And 50% of them have failed. And when I say failed, they mean shut down. Um, And and barely another 30% have, have given me one X. So it's just so stark that that one thing has just given me multiple times over the investments that I've made that I just find it so risky. I would not suggest it to anyone because I was like, what if that didn't work? Then all of this was zero. Literally all of this was zero. Um, and and when I when I made those investments. When I look at, I'll tell you the first five investments that I made. The first five investments that I made was one was into a music app, which was ahead of its times and didn't work out. The second one was on a retargeting SaaS tool, of which I had no idea. Honestly, i would not done anything around SaaS even remotely. The third one was an online kitchen which didn't work out again. The fourth one was the one that made me these 23X. And as, as luck would have it, it's not an Indian startup. It's not even a US startup, it's, a, it's an Indonesian startup. And that was a crazy story of how I got there. And the fifth one was an e-commerce website for refurbished mobile phones which again, in my opinion, was ahead of its times because today it's a big category, but back then it wasn't. And of these five investments, one survived and has given me what I just spoke about. All the remaining four, I shut down. Um, and you'll see, there is no pattern. There is there is no thesis. Did I have any, any way of approaching them from a scientific manner? No. Um, I just did that because I liked the founder. I felt that the the drive and the ambition with which they spoke was, was endearing and I was like okay even if I lose the money what else big deal and, and I had that kind of money to play but that was my money would I do the same thing if I had been a in a GP and I had LPs not so sure not so sure or I would make a really bad GP which I'm again convinced I would <laughs>
0: Fair enough. I appreciate the honesty here. Now, I think going back to that question there, how do you not get carried away when you look at some of these deals who have perhaps come to you through some really well-known friends or come through to you through angels who've been investing for a very long, long time? And sometimes you perhaps look at an industry and you feel, oh, this is fantastic. I think this industry is destined to succeed in the, in the coming years. How do you not get carried away when you're looking at some of these investments? Because I, I can only tell you that I have recently started angel investing myself and I've am i not made a single investment. And I've kind of like been looking at deals for the last eight months because every time I look at a deal, I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. And then I spend <laughs> a little more time on it and I'm like, give it a rest, Akash. Maybe you want to like understand the market a little more before you, you want to write that first check. So have, did you have that when you started looking at investing as such, do you come across a bunch of deals and you were like, okay, this is really interesting. Let me try to check here. What's the max that I'm going to lose? Or did you put in a little more thought saying, okay, maybe a little too ambitious. Let's go with the safer bet right
1: now. No, my first, my first few checks were very, very spontaneous and uh, very impulsive. And I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. Um, today, I'm a lot wiser. And I say a lot no's, a lot more no's than than yeses. Um, I I make no more than like right now my pace is about three to four investments a year. And that's not a lot. But for those three to four, I I would say at least a hundred no's. And and here's what my benchmark has become today. The only question that I ask and I probe really deep into it, is whatever it is that you're working on as an entrepreneur, tell me how come it hasn't happened already. And I'm just fascinated and mind blown by how many people, especially the smarter, intelligent ones, give me the answer of, it's happened already, but we'll do it better. (laughs) That's not how it works. (laughs) I wish that, I wish the, the degree of yours took you far in life in entrepreneurship, but it's not. And I've spoken about this quite actively. I, I feel that entrepreneurship is just so brutal because it's the first time people realize where they come from, what have they done in life, matters nothing. Literally nothing. The market's the market. Like you you would you would not buy a product from a company just because the founder went to the best business school in the world. Right. You wouldn't buy a product from any company just because the founder hasn't drawn a salary for the last six months. You wouldn't buy a product from a company just because the founder had to lay off his entire company and is going through mental depression. you couldn't care less. You'd only buy it if the product works for you. And that is not something that most people are used to in life because they've just been used to their degrees, their institutions, their stamps working for them. But entrepreneurship, it doesn't. In the VC world, it may. I you was, just, a, I was just about to say,
0: you, you, I mean, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't be surprised by this. But when I've sat in rooms where people talk about, okay, which business school did this person go to? That's the first question that they ask. Forget about the idea, the market, the traction, the opportunity. Where do they go? That's one of the filtering mechanisms that people have and VCs have in place. And these are VCs in the Valley. I've spoken to people in, in India. This is like a standard filter automatically. And believe yeah. it or not, Crunchbase, CB Insights, Traction in India, the first thing that if you speak to a sales representative, the first thing that they'll tell you is, sir, there's a filter button here where you can filter by school which geography that this person has worked in. And I was just blown away by that. I'm like, how often do you end up selling this to people like this particular pitch, they're like more often than you believe. Yeah. Does that surprise
1: you? No, it it doesn't. It it doesn't because uh, again, right. The, the, the way that this is panned out is investing is all about betting with virtually zero data. So you have to use proxies. You have to use proxies. That's the way that we all work. It's, it's how people get married. It's how people make friends. It's how we choose our schools. It's how we make decisions in life professionally as well. So I wouldn't say that it'll be any different in investing. It's just a replica of what we see anywhere else. It's just a use of proxies in the absence of data. And, and business schools, or, or for that matter, not just business schools, anything that has a really, really, really low acceptance ratio just becomes a really good proxy. Um, and and that's, that's just it. Um, it just says that someone's, like, I use this example a lot when, when I go to ISB or I speak to students from ISB, and of course, in, in most consulting firms, Oh, sorry, in most business schools, going to a consulting firm is, is like the top job. And they're like, hey, how do you get a, a shortlist for McKinsey or BCG or or Bain or Carney and so on? Like, I want to get a shortlist. What grade do I need in the school and, and what do I need to do in extra and so on? And I says, here's the truth. 90% of whether you will get a shortlist or not has already been decided before you even entered the school. It's by what you've done in your life so far you 're not going to change that, so what you do at ISB or what you do at business school is just going to be an extension of how you 've lived life so far you 're not going to become a different animal and become a four pointer in school when you 've been an average grader all through your life it 's not going to right. happen so a consulting firm you will be tricking yourself into believing oh the consulting firm only shortlists from the dean 's list or They only shortlist from the highest achievers. They only shortlist the academically well-to-do. No, they shortlist people who are consistently doing well their entire life. And by that merit, they happen to also do well at business school. That's what they shortlist. So it's the same thing with VCs as well. And I, I wouldn't blame them. If I didn't have any data, that's what I would do. I use a proxy of, familiarity i use a proxy of ambition but i'm also using proxies and and so does everyone else
0: and how much of your own personality do you draw a lot of parallels to when you meet entrepreneurs yeah not everybody can have a similar journey or experience or exposure that you've had but how much of you do you see in your investments
1: Uh, that's a great question man i you know i I actually, in hindsight, think that I see a lot of myself in my investments, and that's why I invested in them. And, and when I say myself, it's not so much the journey, as you pointed out. It's not so much of what I've done or how I look, how I speak, or where I come from. It's, it's fundamentally the, the underdog effect. I love betting on underdogs because I know that I was one at some point of time. And I know that no one would have bet in school that I'd be where I am today. In fact, I wouldn't have bet myself. So so I'm just so, so, so lucky to be where I am. And I feel that that's what underdogs need more than anything else. They're just as capable. They're just as smart. They're just as talented. But they just need someone to bet on them. So I do find myself betting on underdogs a lot more, which is ironical. Because- considering or given the the conversation we just had, I'll be drawn to the best engineering schools and the best business schools in India. But if you give me two equally sharp, smart people, one who went to IIT and one who went to a not-so-well-known school, I'd love to bet on the one who went to the not-so-well school.
0: How do you know somebody's not faking it when they meet you?
1: I believe my judgment on that. I, I think I'm a, I'm a good judge of people and I've become better over time. So that's something that I'm, I'm mostly confident on.
0: Fair enough. Now, different people have different sources of deal flow, right? And people very well networked. Sometimes their ex-employees go on to found startups. And in some rare cases, it's serendipity, although I don't believe too much in that. Where do you meet startups and how do you filter them?
1: Most of my startups uh, just come inbound, and, and that largely stems from the social persona that I've created over the years and how I've got myself out there and, and invisible. So most people just, just write in. Mm-hmm. Um, I do get, and that, that I think would be about 60, 70% of my deal flow from at least a volume perspective. But as can be expected, that's also not the highest quality because it just gets a fair bit of noise. Right So my highest quality deal flow comes from fellow entrepreneurs um, who who'd be, who'd be investors themselves and, um, and they're like, "Hey, I'm investing here. I'd love you to look at it because I feel that you can add something that I don't want to do later. Um for and, and that that mostly happens. Now that the some sort of a tipping point has has happened in terms of the investments that I've made. I see friends of founders, uh, invested founders, working as well, which is the network of the founders that I've invested in, Um, that's beginning to take shape. It's still very early, but I can see that, that happening as well.
0: So when you hear a very good friend of yours, who is also a colleague making an investment in an early stage company how much of your own intelligence goes into it versus trusting your friend's judgment and perhaps maybe the fact that they've had successful hits in the past? Or do you have to look at it from a fresh slate every time and say, I'm going to look at it as if this came to me as a blind inbound?
1: That's what I do. I, I don't have to, but that's what I'd like to do. Um, I do feel that my my reasons of investing are very different from most others. Um, this again is not something that I I do for making money. Um, while I did think that my angel investing may will lead me to early retirement, but clearly not. Um, but I, with no disrespect meant to the one who's recommended, I will go through my diligence, and that diligence is not so much business diligence that diligence. And that's what happens. Most of the diligence that's already happened would be mostly around market, business, unit economics, PMF, MVP. My diligence is on the founder. My diligence is on where did they come from? How many times have they failed? How do they look at people? How do they look at building a business? What's their larger purpose of doing this? What do they feel inspired by? What have they done beyond this in life? Um, what kind of different things do they do in, in their life? Do they even spend time with people who are nothing like them? Right. So it's a very different assessment. Um, and there are, there are quite a few times where just that journey will lead me convinced that even if they're thinking about the business in the right manner, they wouldn't end up there because they just reality has an insane amount of detail
0: are, are they shocked happens. when they speak to you because these are some unconventional questions that get put across to them Quite. because during the whole fundraising process perhaps they would have come across this maybe once or twice
1: it, it it is always almost always the case i i always have the founders commenting we didn't think like that so far we just didn't think like this so far um, yeah i just i just showed them the mirror I would like, look, I, I don't hate you. I don't love you. So whatever I'm going to say is just pure first principle. Like I would hold myself to that same standard. And that's why I am sharing that same standard with you. This is how I look at it. Like funny enough, this afternoon itself, I spoke to two founders, immensely experienced, 20 plus years of experience, each starting a, a company that, i'm convinced will not work and i showed them the reason why and and once they saw it it was just it was just very visible to them as well um but yeah that's that's just how, it, how that's what i think my responsibility is
0: fair enough and that's the new breed of investors that we perhaps need especially and there's a lot more flexibility that can come from the angel side of the community rather than the VC side because there's fiduciary responsibilities, there's the reasons that people can't really speak their mind on the VC side of things, wherein yeah. angels can perhaps take that liberty to to take Great. it one step further. Now, how long do you take to make a decision yourself?
1: Very quickly, 24 hours. Oh, wow, that is incredibly quick. Yeah, I... Um... I don't need more than 24 hours after I've had a face-to-face conversation or a Zoom call with, with the founder. So the usual process is they'll send me an email. Um, I'll ask them my favorite question, how come it's not happened already? Most of them will fail at that stage itself, in which case I'll just say sorry. So you have conviction right uh, there. Right. And, and those who pass that filter, I ask them to send me some reading material. I go through it. I set up a call. And, uh, and then within... Uh, within twenty four hours I give them a yes or a no. Again, if you're if you're if you're refusing ninety-eight percent of the time, it just becomes really easy. Right. Now, what in
0: your opinion is perhaps the most underrated and overrated quality in an entrepreneur? Because you've spoken to many of them in the past. So what stands out and what do you feel is I think you touched upon this a little bit with with fancy degrees and titles. But apart from, you know, if you put that aside, when you speak to them, what do you what what in your opinion is, is overrated and underrated? Especially today my
1: um, I feel what's what's overrated is the definitely the degrees the external validation that they've had all along uh, I surely feel what's overrated is how good of a technology founder they are um, and I speak more in the Indian context because I At least it's very evident that in India to win, you need a combination of technology and hardcore operations on the ground. And that's not something that most techies even know how to go to or get past. What's underrated is absolutely the mental strength that a founder has had in their life or how mentally strong they are to go through this journey. I don't think there are any conversations around that at all. And that's where I feel most startups actually fail. And and I feel another aspect which is highly underrated is their ability to communicate and to sell a story, not just to investors, but to employees to customers to the media how good of a communicator or storyteller are they?
0: That's in fact, one of the things that I want to also speak about because you've kind of like built that personality yourself. It doesn't come naturally to a lot of people and people do feel sometimes, yeah, some people do have that inbuilt charm. Some people have to work hard on it and it takes a lot of practice. And one of the things that I believe that entrepreneurs don't do really well is selling their own founder story. And I think, A lot of consumers connect to that sometimes. They really connect with the face of the company. I mean, take one of the biggest examples in the world, Steve Jobs and Apple. Might be overrated to a lot of people, but that's a story that was able to sell globally. Now that somebody who founded a company, being kicked out, coming back, the second coming, being successful. That's a story that connected because everybody kind of felt at some point that, they had something going for them and you know things didn't go well, but they're talented, they want to believe they're not kind of giving it a second shot. Yeah. And now that narrative plays out really well. Now, do you think sometimes it's not just the founder, but it's also the team around him? I'm sure there's PR agencies, there are people who really place them well and coach them well to really get them to get that out there. And how would you say founders can go about doing that without all of these external help? If I today were to start my own company and I have no external support, what are some of the things that I can do to really get that story across to my consumers or my clients or potential investors or who it may be that I want to work with?
1: I, I, I think the, the only, only, only way that, that can happen, Akash, is if you are a true student of human psychology. If you do not understand how humans think and behave and operate and emote, you're never going to become a good storyteller simple as that so i don't think it's got to do anything with your articulation i don't think it's anything to do with which language do you speak and how well do you speak it or or your diction or your pronunciation it's a lot to do with do you recognize what emotions you're able to generate through which words through what combination and why and that really doesn't require Want to practice because it's something that everyone has within them. They just haven't spent time yeah, enough to do get it. to that point. Right. And and once people recognize that, then it just becomes clinical. And then then there is a very clear path towards it, and and it's a it's a it's a proven path. It's a path of virtually zero failure. And, and that's what people have to to get started on. So when people get media trained, when people get all this help and so on, I just feel that they're dressing up something that isn't even ready. Um, and, and you can dress someone up. It, it's, it's like go back to the early interviews of Mark Zuckerberg and you'll realize that that was just media training done very poorly. But when you look at Mark Zuckerberg today, you realize he doesn't need any training anymore because right. he's just understood why or how or what gets people to react and to behave in a certain way. And that's just, to his credit, something that he's devoted himself to and gotten better at. I
0: think that's a great point And I totally agree with that. And just going back to a previous point, in my opinion, the two most underrated qualities are, I don't, I, I don't know if a lot of investors can really at the outset of an investment really gauge this, but it's a resource allocation and efficiency in decision-making, you know, time, not money is the killer of startups. And we've kind of like seen the best ones that operate today really magnify that in many ways. And I think you mentioned that recently in one of your videos as well, uh, where you spoke about the time value rather than just the opportunity cost. And people look at it from a very, how is is if that if I'm paraphrasing a lot of things that you said in that video, but it's more about can we take a one hour in your day and and convert that to the amount of effort that you're putting in? It's not really the amount of effort; it's more about the time. Is it time well spent? And that's really the time value for money. And I think that's very important when it comes to a founder perspective as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think being being high agency is just so so important. Like being resourceful is just so important because you'd always be short either on time or on money or a combination thereof, or any other resource that makes that happen. If you are resourceful, then suddenly uh, you open up a lot more opportunities than most other people.
0: Now, so before each episode, I usually ask a group of my friends if they have specific questions for my guest, and I had one of them in which I thought was very, very interesting. So this person who wanted to remain unnamed for some reason asked that, you know, I put this across to you and I'm paraphrasing here. Now, you're a well-known and successful Indian businessman. Do people generally get intimidated by you when they speak with you? Especially founders, because oftentimes given that certain first-time founders have not quote-unquote made it, they suffer from the imposter syndrome among many, many things. Has that happened in your experience? And if so, what do you do to make people feel comfortable around you?
1: It, uh, it does happen. It does happen. Um, quite quite often where people see me as, as a far bigger entity than I, I see myself or I even consider myself. Um, and that's why at least one of the biggest themes that I speak about quite often is this theme of if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And it's been the, the the driving force for my life. And I've seen how I've benefited tremendously from it. And that's why I, I just wholly endorse it and keep speaking about it every now and then. And uh, invariably, a lot of people who write in almost start with that. They're like... Uh, Hey, I had this email parked for the longest time, but as you say, if you don't ask the answers, always no. so here it is. Uh, but after that, I, I, I feel I'm, I'm really best to be, to be able to connect to people in a, in a manner that makes them comfortable. I am I'm a very, very, very curious individual. So I ask people a lot of questions. I, I start with asking factual questions to which there are no right or wrong answers, but only one answer. Because that gives them the feeling that they are responding accurately and that makes them a lot more comfortable. So when you ask people, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Tell me about your family. Uh, where were you working before that? Uh, tell me something that I don't know about on the resume. There, there, there are no wrong answers. Uh, and even if they were to give one, there is no way for me to validate that. So they begin to see psychologically the impression that, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting it. I'm getting everything right, I'm getting everything right. So they, they become comfortable instantly. That's what they keep telling their mind. And then I can get into the harder, more difficult conversations. But I think it it works out well.
0: I think I watched for that. I think our very first conversation was something similar as well, where I think we went yeah. back and forth and you asked me a bunch of questions about where I'm from, what's my background. And I can relate <laughs> to some of those things right now as, uh, as you said that. <laughs> Awesome. Now, on that note, let's jump into my last segment, which is a rapid fire. It's Great. fairly, fairly simple. I fire non-controversial questions at you and you take a shot at them, <laughs> if that sounds awesome. good. Let's do it. Great. What's one technology that you'd like to see being successful 20 years from now?
1: Definitely artificial intelligence.
0: Nice. And I think this question ties in well to something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and it's about your life. Now, if you could form a board of investors for your personal
1: life, who gets a seat at it and why? Ooh, my wife for sure. <laughs> is she is she sitting in the background? Is this being monitored? No, she is. No, 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 she is. This is not to own brownie points, but I I I don't think there'll, there'll be a better board member. I'll even make up the chair, uh, than then her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice that's a that's a great answer now if you were eighteen all over again, mm-hmm. one what would you study two which company
1: would you like to start your career with and where nice interesting all right so what would I study? I would absolutely study psychology I would absolutely study psychology i think it's it's a it's an imperative subject for everyone. Where would I want to work uh, so assuming I'm eighteen right now, so all the companies that Exist today uh, are there um, I would love to work at Airbnb and I would love to work at their HQ
0: Nice. Is there a specific reason given that this is also a very tricky period for a company like
1: Airbnb? I just, I just love Brian Chesky and his way of leadership. Like he, he for me stands for everything that is right and I just hope that he succeeds because if he does then he just proves that you don't have to be an asshole to be successful. I like that. I like that.
0: Uh, I guess this is more of a personal question. How important are personal connections to your happiness? And what have you learned about nurturing meaningful relationships?
1: I, um, I'm i not a very social person. Um, contrary to popular belief, I'm, I'm an introvert. I I, love I find that very hard to myself. believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> people are like, so I'm, I'm great in a crowd because for me, a crowd is nobody whenever I'm speaking, I'm speaking to myself. And uh, I've like, heard I, you say I that before. Have, yeah. Yeah. I, I could have 5,000 people in front of me and, and it wouldn't do anything to me. Um, but all the, all the relationships that I do have, uh, I, I love them, but I do know that I don't need anymore. Um, I'm very content.
0: Perfect. Now you're a great example for CEO who is, who's vocal. And we kind of like touched upon this a little bit as well. Now, if you were to give one piece of advice to founders who are guilty of trying too hard, what would you tell them?
1: (laughs) Don't let someone else's definition of success become yours.
0: Yours. I think that's great advice. And, you know, do you have an all-time favorite book, movie, or a song? Or all three? I'm pretty sure you have (laughs) all three. I'm pretty sure most people have all three.
1: Yeah, yeah, we do. I, I, no, it's, uh, I, I don't have all-time favorite book or movie or song. It's really, really hard to choose, but I'll give you a few that I've genuinely liked and loved. Uh, one book that has really helped me a lot, um, and I read it very early in my career, in 2009, almost 11 years back, was a book by Jason Fried uh, called Rework, who was 37 Signals. And now Basecamp, uh, CEO and founder. I love that book. It changed me fundamentally. Uh, in the recent ones, uh, Hard Thing About Hard Things is just so fascinating. I just right. absolutely loved it. Zero to One is just so brilliant. Shoe Dog, Phil Knight is just such a great book. Um, but yeah, plenty of them. Movies, Shawshank Redemption remains one of my best ones, the entire Batman trilogy remains one of my favorite ones. I'm, I'm one of those who's never watched The Godfather. I've never watched The Star Wars. I've never watched The Lord of Rings. I've never watched The Harry Potter. Uh, I just can't find myself committed to any series. I'm going to be a vulture hi-fi
0: at this point because I haven't seen one of those either.
1: <laughs> awesome. I'm so glad I found one more of us. But uh, yeah, it's like I, I can't commit myself to any Any series as such. So even on Netflix, I just watch a movie and get it done with. No, no series. Uh, Songs, I love. I love songs. So I can't pick a favorite.
0: I had this wild idea that we should do a VC playlist on Spotify and just put it out there just to let people know what VCs listen to. So that would be be like a fun exercise to just survey people in the industry and and pick one song and just create a Spotify playlist and share it with everybody.
1: Absolutely. That would be so much fun.
0: That would be so much fun. Now, (laughs) lastly, before I let you go, I usually ask guests to leave listeners and founders with one piece of advice on fundraising. Now, you've given plenty of those over the course of your uh, answers on this podcast. So I'm not going to ask you to repeat that, but I'm going to be selfish here for a minute and ask you for advice for myself. Now, if I'm trying to like build a personal brand both it could be virtually, it could be socially, it could be through what I'm trying to do with, with VC. And I believe that eventually I want to get down the operator route and found my own company because I do feel that's kind of where I want to go back to. I, given that you don't know me too, too well either, what sure. piece of advice that you normally give people when they're trying to embark on a journey in an industry that you've been very successful in, which is being an entrepreneur, being a successful founder, if somebody aspires to go down the same route, what do you often tell people? Like, What do they need to know at the outset before they start?
1: I, I don't think it's, it's so much about what do they need to know. It's about whether they have a machinery to know anything and everything <clears throat> that is perhaps a blind spot for them today. And driven by that, my only advice would be spend time, a lot of time with people who are nothing like you. Uh, Because the more and more you spend time in your cocoon, the more and more time we spend in our own world thinking that that is the only world that exists out there, uh, the lesser and lesser imagination and ideas will we have for what we could do and why. Um, And it's a pity that most people just spend time with people who are like them, who just agreed with them, who who are endorsing the same point of view and the same worldview that they have. Uh, And whenever that happens, you just become a, a bigger version of yourself. You don't become a better version of yourself. So, the goal for any entrepreneur, whether right now or a future entrepreneur or future founder, is to become a better version of themselves and that's only going to happen if you spend time as a discipline with people who are nothing like you
0: That's a wonderful note to end the podcast on a good you know you know this, and I could sit here and talk for hours together and draw battles from your time as an entrepreneur to everything that you're currently involved with right now, but it's been. One of my favorite conversations, forget on the episode, but in life in general, and I'm sure the insights that you provided today, our listeners and you know whoever eventually listens to this years from now will find it incredibly valuable. I hope this was fun for you as it was for me. So thank you so much again for, for being here today.
1: Thank you so much, Akash. You're very kind in your appreciation. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. You're doing a your- a wonderful job. I love the, the deep thoughtful questions you asked. It made me think. Some of them had never been asked before. So that, to your credit, they, they, they got me thinking and, and I'm glad I went out that journey by my own self for selfish reasons.
0: That that not. was basically me spending hours together on YouTube <laughs> trying to make sure I don't ask the same question that's been asked before to you. And it's very hard because some of the interviews that you see, there's some questions that really come across. It's a different version of a question that's been asked by somebody. And I had yeah. to like really make a list of questions that I made sure that, okay, this has never appeared before. Uncle's never answered it on record. And it's not on YouTube because that's the yeah. first place that people go to when they want to listen to any of the interviews that you've given. So it it did take a little bit of effort, but I'm
1: glad it was worth it at the end of it. No, it shows. Thank you so much for putting in the effort.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of an amazing episode. There's a lot of depth to the things Ankur says, and I particularly enjoyed his take on Angel Investing and how he assesses founders. It's very unique to him and mirrors his personality in so many ways. Thanks for being on the show, Ankur. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Well, if you all enjoyed that episode, please make sure you hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review as well. By doing so, you're enabling others to discover this podcast and episode. So please go ahead and be generous. I'd like to thank you all for helping us get past this number. I'm super grateful to have each and every one of you as a listener. And I'm as motivated as I was on the first episode to bring you great venture capital and investing content through the lens of leading investors in the country. I have another great guest lined up for you next week, so make sure you tune back in again to that one. Until then, stay safe, everyone, and keep hustling.